Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Hello and welcome to Reasonable Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. Last month, I was invited to beautiful Traverse City, Michigan, to discuss the status of God in the 21st century with Scott Smith of tcapologetics.org. The discussion was hosted by etc. of etc.org, who hosts monthly popular-level philosophy discussions. I want to thank the organizers at etc. for their hospitality, and I want to thank Michael Toms for recording and allowing us to use this audio for this episode. Though if you prefer to watch the video, which includes slides, it can be found at Michael's YouTube channel, uh, just Michael Tom's Two Words. We will link to the video on the blog posting for this episode at doubtcast.org and on our Facebook page. I hope you enjoy listening to the discussion as much as I enjoyed participating in it. Well, good evening and welcome to Etc. Thanks for joining us tonight. If this is your first time here and you've picked up one of the introductory sheets, the paragraph at the top of the page captures the whole purpose of Etc. It says, Etc. is motivated by the Socratic maxim, the unexamined life is not worth living. We're united by our fascination with the philosophies and worldviews that impact our everyday life, our street-level life. Our goal is to create a forum of honest inquiry, informed discourse, and reasonable presentations over even the most volatile of issues. Our ultimate goal is to bring moral and philosophical clarity to our culture, our world, and our very existence. If you've been here this past year, in fact, this month is our one-year anniversary. It was a year ago this month we had our first meeting. Uh, You know we've engaged quite a few interesting topics over the past year, and a number of you in this room were part of those panels. Uh, Everything we do is voluntary, so for all of you who have contributed and to the people contributing tonight, a a big thank you to making that happen. Uh, Tonight's speakers are Justin Schieber and Scott Smith. If you see on the biography, uh, Justin and Scott have debated before, actually, about the existence of God. We're not doing tonight as a debate format. Uh, We're doing a typical etc. format, which is just giving them both an opportunity to make a case for why they believe what they do about the existence or the non-existence of God. We call the evening the status of God in the 21st century with the idea of the rise of modernism and postmodernism and science and philosophy and logic and reason. Uh, How's God doing? So you're going to hear two very different presentations tonight. Each of them will take approximately 20 minutes to make a case for their position. Beth and I will ask them each a couple questions when they're finished. And when they're both done, that's when we'll open it up to questions from the audience. So as you are listening, be writing stuff down, be filing away questions you want to ask them. As always, we will go to the Blue Tractor afterwards. We encourage you to join us. Uh, We'll close them down if we want to. (laughs) But the topic over there is always lively and enlightening as well. You'll also notice on the bottom of the introductory page the topics for the next two months. Uh, They promise to be interesting ones, and we would encourage you to join us for those presentations as well. So Justin's going to go first tonight, and uh, Justin, we were talking ahead of time, if he would like to talk a bit about what has brought him to this point in life, he's welcome to give you some background, or if he wants to simply jump into the whole discussion of God, 
Um, Justin and Scott both are welcome to take whichever approach they prefer. So, Justin. Oh, uh, all right. Uh, well, good evening. Uh, I want to thank uh, Anthony here and the Etc. group for inviting me to participate in tonight's discussion. Um, these kinds of events are really encouraging, uh, and so I commend you guys for holding these kinds of events and discussing these big issues. I think that's, that's uh, something that needs to be happening more often. Uh, also, I'm very pleased to be uh, able to discuss this question with uh, my friend Scott Smith. Um, now, essentially, my goal is, is twofold. I'm, I'm going to skip the uh, introduction just because I, I, might have, uh, I might have a lot to cover here. Um, but my goal tonight is twofold. Uh, I want to bring to your attention some arguments and ideas that press strongly against the existence of God uh, that you may or may not have heard before uh, or thought of before. Uh, some reasons for thinking that atheism is probably true. Secondly, I want to examine uh, arguments that uh, Scott brings up or, or perhaps uh, you know, any, any kind of uh, concerns that, that anyone has in the audience here. Um, and you know we can ask ourselves: Are these good arguments? We can examine them for their uh, for their soundness. Now, it's my sincere hope that both believers and non-believers will hear something tonight that makes them think differently about these topics. I, of course, don't expect to change anybody's mind tonight. Um, in fact, I would I would see that as almost irresponsible if, if we were to change our minds so quickly in that way. But I do hope that uh, that tonight can inspire a more thoughtful approach to an issue that's, that's often a, a very contentious one. Uh, as is the case with many controversial issues, the issue is usually far more complex than, than uh, what people are willing to admit. Now, so I'm going to be presenting two arguments for why I think, um, why I think atheism is true. For my first argument, the existence of the universe. I actually think that the very existence of the universe is a logical problem for God. I'm willing to bet that nobody here seriously doubts that the universe exists. Right? The reality of the universe and the objects within it are just too obvious to deny. I'm also willing to bet that the theists in this room believe that God is maximally great. He's, he's a maximally great being. Uh, he's absolutely perfect, both morally and ontologically. So what is meant by this? What is meant by ontological perfection? Well, there are things called great-making properties. Uh, theologians have identified these, and they, they call them, uh, them great-making properties, things like power, uh, having knowledge, being loving. Uh, and God, if he exists, is a maximally great being uh, in that he has all of these properties to their maximal degrees. As in, there couldn't be a being that is more loving than God, because God is maximally loving. Um, the words of Christian philosopher J.P. Moreland can help shed some light on this. Uh, J.P. says, To say that God is perfect means that there's no possible world where he has his attributes to a greater degree. God is not the most loving being that happens to exist. Rather, God is the most loving being that could possibly exist. So that God's possessing the attribute of, of being loving is to a degree such that it is impossible to have it to a greater degree. So the question I want to ask us tonight is if the Christian God were to exist, would he have reasons to create the universe? Could he have reasons to create the universe? The theist, of course, only has one option here. 
he must answer yes because, well, after all, the theist does accept the existence of the universe. So he must say that if God exists, he would have reasons to create such a universe. Um, however, I want to argue that the answer to this question is actually no. That God, if he exists, would never actually create anything. Let alone an entire universe and populate it with the creatures that we find it to be populated with. The argument involves the term God world. No, this isn't a, a theme park. Um, <laughs> in the context of this argument, God world is a term that I, ref- that I use to refer to that possible world where God exists alone and nothing else exists for eternity. So maybe you're wondering what I mean when I say possible worlds, right? Well, when I say that X is a possible world, all I mean is that X is a possible way that reality could have been. When I say that X is the actual world, I'm talking about how reality really is. So again, to say that God world is a possible world is only to say that um, it's, it's possible that God could have not created the universe. So I'm referring to that, that alternate reality where God never actually creates anything. So, um, if you want to go to my first slide, and the next one. The, uh, uh-oh. How is everybody doing today? <laughs> okay. Uh, th- I call this the cosmological argument for atheism. Uh, it reads like this. If the Christian God exists, then God world is the unique best possible world. Premise two, if God world is the unique best possible world, then the Christian God would maintain God world. Premise three, God world is false because the universe does exist. And conclusion, therefore, the Christian God, as so defined, does not exist. Now, this argument sure seems valid, uh, but is it sound? Are the premises true? Premise one, you know, if, if the Christian God exists, then God world is the unique best possible world. Why think that this premise should be true? Well, if God exists, remember, he's the best possible being, meaning that he has, he has all those great-making properties to their maximal degree and no such properties to any lesser degree. Now, a world composed entirely of the single best possible being would be a world composed entirely of all those great-making properties. The universe, or um, I'm sorry, the reality and God would just be identical. So the reality would be made up of these maximally great properties. Unless there is some independent source of goodness that exists outside of God, which I know my, my opponent rejects, and a, and a lot of uh, theistic philosophers reject, um, and, unless there's some independent source of good, then God world must be the unique best possible world. You can't get a better situation than a world composed entirely of all those great making properties to their maximal degree, which is what God is. Um, so truly, this is, this is just the cat's pajamas of possible worlds. Now, premise two. If God world is a unique, best possible world, then the Christian God would maintain or preserve God world. Well, I think that this is true. Well, if God exists, then he is truly a maximally great being. He would be aware of the fact that himself existing alone uh, as God world is the greatest possible situation that could ever exist. A maximally great being, being wouldn't introduce... Uh, limited uh, entities uh, with limited degrees of, of great-making properties, like Genesis would claim, right? Uh, Genesis says that you know, God creates Adam and Eve, but Adam and Eve don't have knowledge to their maximal degrees. So right there, you have God creating um, 
entities with properties that are less than perfect. So he's degrading the state of affairs. Um, and, of course, to suggest that God is in the degrading business is to suggest that he's not maximally great. Premise three. God world is false because the universe exists. This, is, this should be obvious enough. Uh, it's, it's not the case that the only thing that exists is God, because you all exist, so unless you're Spinoza, uh, you should accept this premise. So, the conclusion, of course, is therefore that God, as so defined, doesn't exist. Now, let's suppose that my opponent has a way out of this argument, right? Let us suppose that we're given a reason to doubt uh, my argument and to think that actually a maximally great being would have reasons to intentionally create uh, or to intentionally degrade the, uh, the world by creating non-God objects. Now, if that's the case, then my, my opponent would need to deal with my second argument. Um, this one is not concerned with whether or not God would ever create a universe. Rather, this one is concerned with what kind of universe God would create if he indeed had reasons to create. And so for my second argument, the problem of evil. If I could bring up that slide, please. The existence of evil constitutes strong evidence for atheism. In Uganda, an organized gang of chimpanzees inflicts extreme violence on another lone chimp who has wandered into their territory. They close in with a screaming frenzy, fighting, kicking, and inflicting powerful blows, causing horrific injury uh, to the immobilized chimp until, at last, nature shows a bit of sympathy and allows him to die after several minutes of pure, horrifyingly unimaginable torture. Now, thanks to University of Michigan primate behavioral ecologist John Matini and his 10-year study of a chimp community in Uganda, we now have definitive evidence that bands of chimpanzees violently kill individuals from neighboring groups in order to expand their own territory and secure additional resources. Even isolated instances of cannibalism have been observed. Now, of course, there's very little difference between humans and chimpanzees and the other great apes. Chimpanzees, are our closest cousins, are highly intelligent social animals and are especially sensitive to physical and emotional pain. Like humans, they exhibit a, a range of emotions, including pleasure, deep depression, pain, empathy, and grief. Now, why would a loving God allow this example of horrific suffering to occur? In 1983, Charles Rothenberg kidnaps his six-year-old son David after losing a custody battle with his ex-wife. One night, while David slept, his father douses his body in kerosene. Now David has third-degree burns on 90% of his body. Why would a loving God allow this? Isn't the bystander who does nothing guilty of something? So if God is all knowing he must know about the evils and the sufferings that exist in the world. So that can't be an excuse. He knows about them. If God is all-powerful, then he could easily prevent these. (laughs) If God is all-good, it sure seems that he would want to prevent them. Now, most of you are going to be familiar with this classical problem of evil, right? Uh, This classical problem says that uh, the existence of any evil is logically incompatible with the existence of God. And so if you can show that logical incompatibility and you can argue that evil exists, then it would follow that God does not exist. But I want to give the Christian God a bit of a break here. I want to, be a bit, I want to present an argument that's a bit more sympathetic to the Christian God. After all, we do have a history, so 
I want to be a, you know, nice here. <laughs> I'm perfectly willing to grant that God may have reasons for allowing certain evils or instances of suffering uh, to occur in the actual world. After all, it seems plausible to me that if God exists, God may have reasons for allowing some evils to ensure some greater good uh, or to avoid some greater evil. But, and this is important, God would never allow an evil or an instance of suffering unless it was logically necessary to obtain some greater good or to avoid some greater evil. Uh, That is to say that God would never allow any unnecessary evils, or as I will call them from now on, gratuitous evils. But many of these evils that we uh, observe in the world, many of these instances of suffering, seem like they have no justification in the form of some greater good or in the form of some greater evil that they could uh, avoid. Many of these kinds of evils seem like God could have easily prevented them without losing out on these things. And this is the case even when we think very deeply about these issues. right? Some of these things just don't seem like they could have a possible justification. Now, I think that this fact should lead a rational person to say that probably some evils aren't just confusing, mysterious, or inscrutable, but that some evils, or instances of suffering, are actually gratuitous. Uh, Instances of suffering that God would have prevented if he existed. And so to the degree that there are probably at least, or that there is probably at least one gratuitous evil, to that degree, God probably does not exist. So, uh, the argument goes like this. Many evils, gratu- or many evils and sufferings seem gratuitous. Right? They seem that they have no justification. Uh, secondly, probably at least one evil or instances of suffering is gratuitous. Premise three, if God exists, he would not permit any gratuitous evils or sufferings. And then we, conclude, we can conclude from that that probably God does not exist. Now, a lot of you are going to be thinking, well, hold on there. Uh, you can't just go from the mere fact that uh, many evils seem gratuitous to the fact that probably at least some, at least one evil is gratuitous. Uh, but I disagree. I mean, we make these kinds of inductive inferences all the time. And we feel that we're perfectly rational in doing so. Suppose that, you know, after rummaging around in my fridge... I can't seem to find a carton of milk, right? I look really hard, and I can't seem to find a carton of milk. Uh, This is unfortunately a regular occurrence at my house, but but naturally enough, I mean, I would infer that there probably isn't a carton of milk in my fridge. Nobody would say that that is irrational. In the same way, if some evils are such that uh, it's incredibly difficult to find even a possible justifying reason for God to permit them, then we have really good reasons to think that probably there is no reason for God to permit them. Probably these are gratuitous evils. And of course, if there there are probably gratuitous evils, then God probably does not exist uh, to that degree. Now the theist, of course, has options available to him. Um, One of them being that he could deny my premise from one to two and say that we're simply not in a good position to place probabilities on these things. He could argue that our... uh, our cognitive situation, right? Uh, our awareness of goods and evils that exist uh, is so uh, so low compared to God's that we couldn't really, that we're not really in a position to place probabilities on these things. Um, so remember my fridge analogy. Uh, the theist might say, well, this approach 
Um, this approach might say that we're, we're simply not warranted in concluding that, or, I'm sorry, this approach would say that we are warranted in concluding that uh, there probably is no milk in the fridge, but that is only because we would expect to be able to see it, because milk is of the size and, and of the, uh, you know, it, it appears a certain way that we would be very surprised if we didn't see it in the fridge, right? So if I open up the fridge, I should expect to be able to see it, and if I don't see it, then I can be in a position to, put, to place probabilities on the, on the idea that there probably isn't one there. Um, so it's all about the expectation one has. Now, of course, the theist in, uh, by uh, parody is going to say, uh, given our limited ability to see God's justifying reasons, we're simply not in a good position to say that they probably don't exist. Now, this view, I think, is just extraordinarily implausible. So let's think about what, what kinds of things that this would, would imply. Um, so if we're not in a position to, to understand or to, um, to have knowledge about um, goods and evils, right? So let's, let's say that the theist is saying, look, we're, we're not in a position to think that our knowledge of the goods or our knowledge of the evils or the relationships between these things and, and events that happen in the real world, uh, that our knowledge is so little about these topics that we're not in a position to do that. So we can't really say whether God would be justified in allowing certain evils to occur. Now the problem with that, I think, is that the same thing could be said about God being deceptive. So it may be the case, let me put something out here, it may be the case that the Bible, uh, when it speaks of the uh, necessary and sufficient conditions for a person to be saved, right, it may be that God has um, put in the Bible these different necessary and sufficient conditions, but he's actually lying about them, right? Uh, he has reasons that we don't understand because we're in such a limited uh, epistemic position compared to God's. Um, it might be that God has a reason, a, a morally justifiable reason for lying to us. And just simply because we can't see that reason doesn't mean that we should say that probably one doesn't exist. So... Of course, we could say, well, God is good. He wouldn't lie to us. But of course, you could say the same thing about God is good. He wouldn't allow uh, the father to torture his son, right? This goes both ways. So I could say, well, if we're not in a position to place probabilities on that, we're not in a position to place probabilities on whether or not God is lying to us about the means of salvation, about uh, the nature of God, and um, about whether actually Jesus rose from the dead, right? Because the only um, uh, evidence we have of that is in the Bible, right? These, this is, these are the claims, these narratives. Um, perhaps God inspired all these lies because he wants you to believe certain propositional knowledge about the world, even if it's false, because for some reason beyond our understanding, our beliefs in that are required for some greater good that we don't know of. So, so what this does, of course, is it, is it says that Christians can't actually know that these things are true. They just know that they should believe them. So I think that this kind of response to the problem of evil, uh, this kind of epistemic humility, is very damaging to actually Christian belief. So if you take that response to the problem of evil, then you abandon your knowledge of Christian belief. And um, so as to the status of God in the 20th century, 21st century, um, I don't think it's very good. Um, obviously, belief in God is, is, uh, is rather popular. But as to the rationality of these beliefs, 
I don't think that they uh, that they can hold weight. I don't. I mean, people are going to believe, and they're going to, um, you know, they may or not, may not have good reasons. I don't. I don't know of any actually good reasons to believe in a god. And so, um, I submit to you that you're not rational in believing in one. Thank you. Thanks, Justin. <clears throat> Beth, do you have any questions? If not, I have some. Um, yeah, well, I've got one to start with. Um, for your um, theory about evil and suffering, um, I think a classic rejoinder to that would be the issue of free will. Um, so could you talk a little bit about how, I guess, maybe the concept that a, a loving God would create human beings who have free will to, right, right, right. to deal with those. And then also, could you talk a little bit about how atheism deals with the issue of evil and suffering? Absolutely. Okay, um, well, these are huge issues. Um, now, one of the questions I'm, I'm, I'm interested in is that if, if God, you know, this classical conception of God is that he has all these great-making properties, right? Like knowledge, loving, uh, moral perfection, right? And he has all of these to their maximal degree. Um, and that all value is based in God, right? All moral value comes from God. Now, what I'm, what I'm curious is, is to how one would think that free will would justify uh, his non-intervening in like a, a parent torturing their child, because what is so good about free will? God, if God is essentially perfect, and he's not, he's not morally free, but he's morally perfect, right? If he's, if he's morally perfect, it doesn't, he, he can't be free in any kind of uh, libertarian sense, at least, um, then it would seem that God can't ground the goodness of free will. So, if we're appealing to free will to justify um, God's allowing these things to happen, then it seems to me problematic because I have no idea why we should think that it, that freedom is at all any good because God doesn't have it, and God is the great being, so He would be free if it was good. Um, secondly, I don't know of anybody who would not intervene on a parent torturing his child simply because he wants to respect that parent's free will. Uh, you, can, you can damn well bet I'll be dealing with the parent if I see him torturing his child. Um, and I think that's an obligation I have when I enter a situation like that. Uh, for some reason, God doesn't think he has that obligation, and uh, that's concerning to me. Thirdly, um, a lot of these instances could preserve free will, but you could avoid the consequences. So let's say that um, uh, you know the, these, this this horrific event in, in Boston last week, right? God could have said, "Okay, I'll I'll preserve their free will to do their evil moral choice by dropping these backpacks in these in these areas." But God could, of course, prevented the bombs from going off. That would preserve their free will and prevent the suffering. You'd be amazed at how many uh, instances of of preserving free will. Uh, could could are compatible with the actual uh, problematic effects of those things not actually occurring. Um, now, with atheism, or you know how someone would talk about uh, moral values on a on a naturalistic point of view, I think that moral values are uh, relational properties between desires, and this is a kind of there's a big theory that I would have to expound here, but uh, it's um, Essentially, it says, look, the only real reasons for action that exist are brain states, our desires, right? These are the motivating things that we all have. Um, and we can, and, and that those desires are the primary things to evaluate. 
when it comes to, to moral theory. And so we, we can evaluate different desires by their tendency to fulfill other desires, by their positive relationships to other desires. So, for instance, if you want to say, well, is, is rape a good thing? Um, well, you would have to take the desire to rape and think about whether or not that, what kind of tendency does the desire to rape have upon other desires? Well, it seems to me that it has a pretty negative relationship uh, to other desires. And you could say, okay, well, what about the desire to do charity? It seems to me that it's pretty obvious that the desire to do charity has a very positive relationship towards other desires. So what does that mean? It means that we have very strong reasons to promote some desires and to condemn other desires. Uh, and it seems to me that what obligation is, is that obligation is just knowing that you have very strong reasons to uh, um, foster within yourself a set of desires that is um, conducive to uh, you, know, you, you live in a you don't live in a vacuum, right? You live with other people. Uh, it's best to promote certain kinds of desires within yourself and in your community because uh, you are most rational to do that because you live in that community too. Um, this is all. I probably articulated that terribly, but I, I hope that made sense. Uh, it would take a much longer time to, to discuss that. But, uh, so just good, quick, but great questions. So just to quickly clarify yeah. that then. So for, for your definition of morality, it's about competing desires and re- rewarding or promoting desires that have productive results versus non-productive results. Not, not necessarily results. It's about the tendency of these things. So for instance, you could say, well, well Justin, uh, what about a... Uh, what about a, a world where there is a bunch of people who love to torture, and then there is one baby, right? Um, wouldn't the desire to, wouldn't, uh, you know, acting on your desire to torture, wouldn't that fulfill more desires, right? But, of course, the moral theory doesn't posit that that's how we judge these desires as to their utility. We, we, um, the moral theory posits that we, we think about the tendency, of these desires. So, re- so regardless of the kind of situation, uh, we want to talk about the, 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 it's almost a kind of intrinsic tendency, although I, I, I shy away from that term. Um, because regardless, you're going to have the more and stronger desires being thwarted in, that, in those kinds of situations. Uh, two quick questions, Justin. Number one, yes. just how big is your refrigerator? <laughs> it's actually a normal size refrigerator. It's just very empty. <laughs> okay, good. Uh, and second is uh, this: you were talking about desires and the idea yes. of understanding uh, what good things are to do by desires that are fulfilled or thwarted. If I'm, pardon me, if I'm paraphrasing uh, we would, we poorly, would, we would uh, we would evaluate the value or the uh, yeah the value of certain desires by their tendency to other desires. Okay. Because those are really the only re- reasons for action that exist. So any moral theory must have desires at the center of it. I would reject as just wholly implausible any moral theory that, that didn't have desires as, as a central component. Even yours. I mean, like sure. a divine command theory, uh, apparently God's desires are more important than other people's. So using the framework of, of desire, mm-hmm. going back to your God world analogy... Uh, assuming that means that God desired to create something, um, how do you understand um, his fulfilling of that desire to either be good or bad based on the framework of which you discuss desires? Um, well, uh, it's to, to, to God, it would, 
Okay, so I get, I'm, I'm, maybe I don't understand your question. I might be phrasing it poorly. <laughs> uh, if the idea is that we understand actions to be good or bad because we desire to do something and then mm-hmm. we act on it, and then that action will either uh, fulfill ongoing good things, if I'm, and you correct me if I'm wrong, or it will, it'll build momentum either way, either a continuation of more good desires which lead to mm-hmm. more good things, or if you fulfilled a bad desire, it will build momentum for more bad desires for more bad things. Okay. Um, when you think then of God creating, we have a maximally great being, the right. way you described it um, early on. What desires, uh, how do you understand um, the way in which you view God in the God world example based on the desire he was fulfilling and where that was uh, leading? Oh, right. right. Okay, so this... Okay, so this touches on an interesting point. Um, what would it mean for God to have a desire, especially if the initial point was that he exists in the best possible situation, right? Uh, at that world, at that time, uh, God would be the maximum great being, so the world would be completely composed of all the best things to the maximal degree. What possibly rational reason could God have to, to create something else? Especially if it's something else that's not maximally extended as God is. So in, in essence, no matter what he creates, if he doesn't create another God being, then he's degrading the quality. Now maybe, maybe one could say, well, it's about the number of instances of, of goods. right? Even if they're imperfect goods, what's important is that you know, there are a thousand goods, a thousand imperfect goods is better than one perfect good. Well, that just seems... Um, wildly implausible to me because it seems that a perfect being would never want to sacrifice quality on the altar of quantity. Uh, so I guess that's what I would say to that. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense to me that God could have a rational desire for anything at a point in time like God world. All right. Thanks, Justin. Thank you. Uh, when we get to Q&A, obviously we'll have opportunity for all of you to continue to ask questions. But at this point, we're going to turn it over to Scott. All right. Thank you. Uh, I enjoy seeing Justin again. Uh, only seen you in person a few times. Yeah. Um, we met on Facebook by lurking at a lot of the same places, <laughs> both on my side and his side, and we ended up taking over a lot of threads. Um, so, <laughs> But I've enjoyed talking to Justin because uh, we always have very interesting conversations, very civil, and uh, always learn a lot. Um, as far as the status of God in the 21st century, uh, I'm not quite sure how to take that. Um, but I guess as far as his status, I, I am a theist. I believe in God. So his status, I think he's doing fine. Um, <laughs> as far as the status of people's belief in him, uh, you know, we go through ups and downs, and it's an interesting era now and it, on both sides, I think. Um, but regardless, I don't think we make any decisions about what is true based on counting noses. So whether he exists or not is a separate issue from his status of whether people are accepting of that idea. Uh, my position is I believe uh, that I'm convinced that God exists, uh, the Christian version, the Christian God exists, because I believe Christianity matches the way the world is. Um, this kind of presentation can be a bit tricky for, for everybody on both sides because the diversity of people and what motivates them and, and gets them engaged. Some people are interested in philosophy, science, you know, um, experience. So there's all different ways to approach this. So I decided to just pick a few things, as Justin did, that appeal to me, that I think are kind of a broad 
a broad approach, and I'm sure we'll cover others later. But as to the first one that I, I wanted to talk about is broadly the issue of origins, origins in general. And I'm going to touch on three specific examples. Um, the first example, uh, interestingly enough, is the origin of the universe. So <laughs> start in the same place. Good place to start. And as Justin said, I think we can all agree that the universe is. So we can start there on common ground. <laughs> the question, I think, is where did it come from? Initially, what, what initiated the universe? What caused it? There was a moment when it wasn't, and then it was. What happened? Something happened there for that change to occur. One thing that I think kind of illustrates the importance of this, if you're walking through the woods and you, it's an area you're convinced that no one has been before, you don't see any, any evidence of people having ever been there, and then you trip over something, you look down, and you find a perfectly polished glass sphere. That's odd. You don't expect to see that there. So when you see something like that that doesn't belong, it demands an explanation. It, it has to have a reason for being. It has to have had a cause of some sort. Whether we can ascertain what it is or not, it has to have had one. So merely increasing the size of the ball doesn't make it any more plausible. So let's say we take that glass we picked up and went, well, this is bizarre, I, I can't imagine that there have been people out here. But then we make it the size of a house. That doesn't make it any more likely to be something that we'd stumble across. We take that same thing and take it to the size to encompass the entire universe. I think it gets the larger it gets the less plausible it, it becomes that it just is by brute fact, that there's no explanation needed and no cause necessary. It just is, and we should accept that. So because of that, I think it's a good reason, there's good reason that we should take this question seriously. Where did the universe come from and what caused it? Uh, evidence, all evidence we've been able to ascertain, philosophical, scientific, it all points to the same conclusion that there was a time when nothing existed. Uh, after that, the Big Bang, all of a sudden, well, before that, we didn't have quarks, atoms, energy, space, time, nothing. There was nothing. And then somehow after that, all these things did exist. Theologians call this ex nihilo, creation ex nihilo. Not just creating something like you're taking some Play-Doh and forming something from it. Ex nihilo means from nothing. Um, Greek philosophers, ancient Greek philosophers would say, their, their saying was ex nihilo nihil fit. From nothing, nothing comes which sounds pretty common sense, that if you have nothing, it's most likely that nothing will proceed from that. So based on that concept, there's a, an ancient uh, argument for God's existence, which is a branch of the cosmological argument. Cosmological arguments are arguments that present reasons for the existence of the universe, broadly. Uh, the one I'm presenting is called the Kalam Cosmological Argument. It's uh, over a thousand years old. Here is the basic form of the argument. Everything that begins to exist has a cause, which I think is fairly obvious. We can move past that one. But can we get the slide up? Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, there, there should be one that has Kalam on there. Um, everything that begins to exist has a cause. The second premise is the universe began to exist, and we see this from things like the Big Bang, um, the 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 law of entropy. There's a number of things we can point to to show that the universe had a beginning. Um, and this is pretty uncontroverted, uncontested in the scientific philosophical community. So the conclusion would be that follows naturally from those two premises is, therefore the universe has a cause. Because the universe began to exist and everything that begins to exist has a cause, the universe has a cause. To add to that, there are some extensions that I think we need to look at. At the Big Bang, 
there was nothing. There were no actions. Until that, until that point, then that's when matter, time, space all came into being. If that's the case, you can't make something from ingredients that don't exist. So whatever the cause was had to be outside of what came to be. So for instance, if time did not exist prior to the Big Bang, which I know prior to the Big Bang is a prior to time is a is a, a, a whole different subject. Causally prior. <laughs> causally prior. Thank you. Prior to time, causally prior to time, whatever the cause for the the origin of the universe had to be outside of time. Okay? Whatever caused the universe, because the universe was the beginning of space, it has to be outside of space. It has to be non-spatial. Uh, material did not exist. Matter did not exist prior to the Big Bang. So whatever caused the Big Bang must be immaterial. It also must be able to exercise free choice. It must be able to be self-directing in its actions. It must be able to choose, now I will create. Um, and obviously it must be sufficiently powerful to do such a thing, uh, to not just to create, but from, raw, from no raw materials, no energy. No, this isn't a change of states. This is just something from nothing. So, while this is a kind of bland-sounding cause, very vague, when you take into the account atemporal, non-spatial, outside of, uh, it's not material, all these kind of things, it sounds very much like the classical definition of God. So that is called the Kalam cosmological argument. Um, I think the atheistic alternative to this, um, honestly, I think it is left scrambling here. Because the atheistic alternatives, as I see it, are worse than magic. In magic, at least you ha- um, in magic, at least you have a magician pulling a rabbit out of a hat, right? On atheism, you have no magician, no hat, just a rabbit. <laughs> so we have more explaining to do. So uh, I think that is problematic for atheism. Um, moving to the second example of an origin that I think is uh, indicates uh, support for God's existence: the origin of consciousness. Briefly, we are all self-aware, I think, and most of the people I've spoken with. Um, we're self-aware. We're rational beings. We're extremely intelligent. Some animals have these same characteristics to varying degrees, different combinations, different, different levels. The universe is not itself intellectually aware, however. So where did consciousness come from? Where did this awareness come from? From unintelligent or non-intelligent matter... Now we're going to propose that we have conscious beings. Naturalism says that everything, including our thinking, is part of one big interlocking system of physical causes and effects. Physical causes and effects are part of the universe, and the universe is not aware. Therefore, we have no reason to trust our thought processes because everything, including our thoughts, is the result of non-rational forces. Additionally, materialism says that everything is made of stuff. So it seems obvious that our thoughts are not made of stuff. They are somehow immaterial. So it seems obvious to me that materialism isn't true. What all is entailed by immaterialism? What is immaterial? That's a, another topic, but it, doesn't, it seems like materialism fails on that. So given that consciousness exists and that it seems both real and trustworthy, naturalism and materialism seem to me highly implausible. And I would say that, that to claim that immaterial consciousness arose from the material stuff that it's a property of our brain or something like that, is not an explanation. It's just an assertion. It doesn't have anything to base it on. It's, 
it's a claim, maybe it's true, maybe it's not, but we have no reason to take it seriously without reason to believe so. We need to hear an argument why we should take that seriously. So the clearest option, in my opinion, is that our consciousness was given to us by a conscious being, namely God. Uh, and my third and last example for origins is the origin of morality. And I won't beat this to death because we covered a lot of this last month. But rather than talking about whether we can be good without God, which I think everyone agreed to last month, the issue is what goodness really is if there's nothing to measure it against. So just for some analogies that are probably weak, but they'll at least get us part of the way. What do we mean by miles per hour if distance and time aren't real? If we don't have any real things to base measurements on, then I don't know what that measurement means. And in fact, what is any measurement system without an objective standard? If an inch or a pound isn't something, then I don't know what we're talking about when we talk about weights and measures. Uh, as C.S. Lewis quoted, or said once, how can I call a line crooked without comparing it to a straight line? I know there are other ideas out there, but I, all, I think they all fall flat. And here's a few reasons. Without objective morals, there can be no such thing as moral improvement, only moral change. So we can't make any moral judgments about things getting better or worse. They're just changing. So on that basis, anyone who we've talked about is a moral reformer, Wilberforce, Martin Luther King Jr., Jesus, whoever you want to bring in, uh, Gandhi, as a moral reformer who was trying to bring about positive change, you can't say that they're bringing about positive change. At best, you can say they were bringing about change or attempting to, but you really have no basis without an objective moral standard to say what that change was or how to characterize it. Um, And I would say, if there is no God, where does the basis for moral obligations and accountability come from? Which I think we all intuitively feel. So where does that come from? I won't say all because I know that there are others that have other opinions. But um, anyway, so I'm going to suggest that we already know um, we already know this to be true that there that we already know intuitively that um, a moral standard exists. And here's the reasoning for that: we all take for granted that the outside world exists. Most of us saw that there was an event happening here and in a particular building, and that there would be people here. So we took for granted that that was real. So we came here. Uh, so we all, we all take for granted that the world exists. We all take for granted that our five human senses are, are trustworthy uh, and reliable. These are things we call uh, um, a priori or um, that we call them presuppositions because they're things we presume prior to doing any thinking, science, anything like that. We even take our thinking for granted for that matter. We trust that our thinking process is rational. Without, We don't have to start out before you, when you write red term paper. First, let me outline why I think my thinking is reliable and why words can communicate things before you communicate. So there are assumptions that we, that we, we all hold. Well, my question is, what good reason is there to exclude our moral intuition, our moral sense, from those other senses? Sight and smell, for instance in the existence of the outside world cannot be objectively proven to be reliable. They can just be presumed, which I'm not saying is a bad thing. I think that that is a, a uh, reliable assumption. Um, so the only thing we can base these kind of things on is the intuition, the intuition that we can trust our five senses and the observation that virtually all humans seem to share these same intuitions. Well, if that's the case, it seems to me that on that same basis, because we all shape, we all have these moral intuitions ourselves, and we recognize that other people seem to share these same things, it seems to me that if we're going to trust one, we have to trust the other. I think they all rise and fall together. If we're going to trust these other things we think are intuitively true, then our moral sense 
we ought to trust as well. In short, if we feel cold, it's probably because we are cold. If we feel guilty, it's probably because we are guilty. So where does that sense of guilt come from, or rightness or wrongness? If we talk about bad, there must exist some notion called good in order to make any comparison. If there are moral intuitions we refer to as good and bad, there must be a moral law by which we can arbitrate between the two. So it seems plain to me that if there are that there can be no moral laws if, if there exists no moral lawgiver. In other words, God. Lastly, um, I will give a brief um, argument for the resurrection of Jesus, who in fact claimed to be God. As I mentioned, this, this, we're broadly talking about the status of God. Um, there are a whole lot of them out there uh, to choose from. I'm a Christian, so that's the one I know the most about. So I'm speaking on behalf of the Christian God, who claimed to reveal himself through the person of Jesus. So, there was a man that existed, claimed to be God, and said a lot of things, gathered a, a number of followers, and was killed. Um, there are established historical facts from 2,000 years ago that must be dealt with. In my opinion, the most plausible explanation for these facts is that Jesus died and rose again, as the Bible claims. Now, this may seem like a, a ridiculous claim, or an outlandish claim, and it is. If it were a an average or normal thing, it wouldn't gain a whole lot of attention. Um, but I would encourage you to look at these, what I'm going to call the minimal facts here, that virtually all um, people accept as being true, regardless of their, their beliefs about, about God or Christianity. Virtually all historians uh, believe these to be true. And look at what are the possible explanations that would explain all of these facts. Um, what I'm calling minimal facts, we could expand this to probably around 12 um, that are popular. I'm just going to reduce it to three for brevity. Um, and I just to, I want to note here, when I reference the New Testament here of the Bible, it's, I'm just referring to it as a historical book. Okay, it's, And this is an accepted claim by virtually everyone. Um, it is a book that is 2,000 years old that contains historical documents penned uh, during the first century A.D. I'm not making any claim as to their inerrancy or infallibility in this case. So, the first... Uh, the first topic, the crucifixion of Jesus. The crucifixion account is included in every gospel narrative in the New Testament. It's confirmed by a number of uh, non-Christian sources, including the Jewish historian Josephus, the Roman historian Tacitus, uh, the Greek satirist Lucian of Samosata, and the Jewish Talmud. So it is a historically um, a, a historical claim. From the perspective of historiography, Jesus' crucifixion meets the historical criteria of multiple independent and early eyewitness sources. So you want to have more than one source for something to be believable. You want it to be you want them to be independent and you want them to be early. The earlier they are the better. And to make it better, it would be nice if we have enemy attestation, which in this case we do. We've got Jews, Romans, Greeks who were not Christians as well as Christians. Um, noted atheist uh, critical uh, um, critical scholar and co-founder of the Jesus Seminar, John Dominic Crossan, puts it this way. That he was crucified is as sure as anything historical can ever be. So if you want to throw out that Jesus was crucified, we lose a whole lot of history on the same basis. The second point, the empty tomb. Something happened to Jesus' body. It was there and then it wasn't. Jesus was executed in Jerusalem. His post-mortem appearances, alleged, if you'd like, those appearances were in Jerusalem. That is where his resurrection was first proclaimed within weeks after the purported resurrection. 
this would have been the place where they would know whether or not the claim was true. If, if the body were still in the tomb, they're in the right place to go and point it out. Uh, all four Gospels attest to this fact. Women were witnesses. If the Gospels were all fabricating this, you would not pick people who couldn't testify in court, people who were not genuinely, genu- generally seen as reliable. You would say, my gosh, you know, the governor, he was, happened to be in town, and he saw it, and you know, he had his entire entourage with him, and it happened to be in the Jerusalem press or whatever. Um, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't make a claim like that. Um, implicit enemy test, attestation. Uh, the, the earliest claim was that the body was stolen. So right off the bat, people were claiming that the, that the tomb was empty. The enemies were claiming the tomb was empty. So if we have the enemies claiming the tomb was empty, I don't think we have any plausible reason to think that it was all a ruse. Um, atheist historian Michael Grant concedes that the historian cannot justifi- justifiably deny the empty tomb since applied historical criteria shows the evidence is firm and plausible enough to necessitate the conclusion that the tomb was indeed found empty. Lastly, the post-resurrection appearances. Um, New Testament scholar Gerd Ludemann states, the elements in the tradition are to be dated to the first two years after the crucifixion of Jesus, no later than three years. The formation of the appearance traditions mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15 Three through eight falls into the time between thirty and thirty-three CE. The early date of this creed rules out the possibility of myth or legendary development as a plausible explanation, and demonstrates that the disciples began proclaiming Jesus' death, resurrection, and post-resurrection appearances very early. Uh, you know, we hear about lots of myths. Um, in two to three years, you can't have a myth develop, fully bloom, and be accepted. Everybody that claimed to have seen him, that, that heard him, that, that knew what was going on, they were still there to talk to. So, um, and as a result of these re- post-resurrection appearances, where he appeared, according to uh, 1 Corinthians 15, which, again, is uh, every historian agrees, is probably one of the most um, likely and most um, reliable books of the New Testament as being written by Paul, um, that Jesus appeared to hundreds of people, including skeptics, as a result... Eleven apostles who were in hiding, uh, fearing for their lives, in in the space of a few days, went from being in hiding to going and proclaiming publicly under threat of persecution. Uh, Another result, skeptics Paul and James changed religions and ended up losing their life for it. And in fact, most of the apostles and a number of other people lost their lives, and they could have saved them by merely recanting if what they said wasn't true. Yet they didn't, so we have to ask why would they do that? So, in closing uh, for this point, theism, and specifically Christianity, I believe is the best hypothesis because the same answer fits for all of the big, big uh, questions of life. Origins, meaning, destiny, why are we here, where did the universe come from? The, the uh, position posed by Christianity fits all of it without having to do a whole lot of shoehorning, where atheism seems to be a wild grasping at straws to try and put a bunch of different explanations to a bunch of different answers. So I'll leave it there for now. All right. Thanks, Scott. Um, yeah, I think, and we're probably going to ask a few questions of you both and then take an opportunity to open it to the audience in just a few minutes. But um, one question I was curious about, I mean, the, we talked about the topic tonight being the status of God in the 21st century. Um, I think that word God means a lot of different things to a lot of different people, obviously, and certainly there's probably a lot of viewpoints represented in this room. You both talked about specifically the Christian God. Um, so, um, Justin, for your point of view, would 
is there any part of your viewpoint that would allow for consideration of a different deity or supernatural force for the universe that's not confined to the definition of a Christian God? Because a lot of your arguments were specific to a God that's defined by Christian terms. Right, right. And then for you, um, does your belief in a God allow for the possibilities of other incarnations of that God, other religions, or is it strictly a Christian God that sort of fits your worldview? So maybe Justin sure. and then Scott. Okay, uh, so um, whether or not... Uh, my current position is willing to entertain other ideas of God. Is that essentially the question? Yeah. So, um, I mean, you mentioned like a God that is all loving wouldn't create a world right, with right. less loving creatures, but maybe there's a God that doesn't fit the description that right. you meant. Yeah, uh, exactly. Um, and of course, uh, such an argument wouldn't be uh, wouldn't be a real liability to such a God. Uh, so, whether or not I'm, I'm willing to entertain such concepts of gods. I mean, sure, but are there arguments, right? I mean, that's, that's really the question I'm interested in is, you know, we can have all these different ideas of God. Um, the, the question I'm most interested in is, what are we warranted in believing? Um, Scott presented, uh, you know, a few arguments for, um, uh, well, like the Kalam cosmological argument would... would, would uh, would argue for probably most conceptions of God, right? It doesn't really get into the attributes of God. It just talks about, you know, this is uh, a God who created the universe. That's all that is entailed by that. Um, and, you know, that so that could be a very broadly used argument. Um, I don't find it compelling, but, um, I mean, that's an example of an argument that could be, um, you know, motivated to uh, argue for these specific gods. But, like, I'm, I'm most interested in... in not how many different ideas we can come up with, but what reasons we have for thinking some particular idea is actually the case. Scott, what do you think? Um, in my view, from what I, the study I've done, there's only one contender, and I think that's why um, debate seems to focus around that. I, obviously, it was the status of God in the 21st century, and we both kind of went the same direction. Um, I think that's for a reason. Uh, I wrote down the same thing Justin said, essentially, that, sure, I'd entertain any, but I would have to just uh, judge them on their own merit. Uh, what are the arguments? Uh, you know, just to take things theoretically, I'm not sure how to do that. Um, another thing about the, the claim, you know, what about other gods, the pluralistic idea, or either a number of gods or, as you said, perhaps many different um, uh, representations of God, of the same God, However you look at it, I think the thing that we're going to run into is that all truth claims are exclusive. That anytime you say something is the case, that it excludes everything that is not that case. So that gives us some trouble. So anytime you have a, a truth claim, there is a God, there is one God, well, then anyone who believes in other gods, multiple gods, if it is true, I'm not saying that this is a fact that can be proven with certainty, but if it is true that there is one God, then any other claim that there's multiple gods, they go out the window. That's how I'd see it, just from a logic standpoint. Um, I guess also another point of logic would be if you take, I guess, Anselm that, that, that defined God as the maximally great being, the, um, it seems to me pretty self-evident that there can only be one maximal anything. Uh, so it, it kind of makes the whole idea of, of God, I'm not sure what it even means anymore, if there are a number of them. And as far as if there could be other uh, incarnations, representations, whatever. 
again, from Christianity, I would say when Jesus was here, he claimed to be that God. He claimed there was one God, and he was that God. So, And he also claimed that he was the only way to, to the Father. He was the only way to God. So he was either right or wrong. He can't be both. He, he, it either was the case that he was God and was the path to God, or he's not. If it is true that he was God and he's the only path to God, then that rules out every other possible claim that could fall under pluralism, just by fact of logic. He could have been wrong. And if that's the case, then that's a different discussion. But I would say, since, since I'm talking from the perspective of Christianity, that there really isn't another contender because it, it just doesn't make sense on that view. I've got a question for you, Scott, and then a question for both of you, and then we'll be bumping it out to the audience, so be preparing the questions that you have. Uh, Scott, back to your presentation that you just gave. Uh, I guess my question is, what is consciousness? One of the points you made was that you don't believe consciousness can arise from something that is not conscious. Mm -hmm. And with the rise of artificial intelligence, there's more and more clever sci-fi stories out there about what the future holds as machines become sentient. How do you understand consciousness? Is it simply self-awareness? Is it rationality? Is it a sense of time passing? Uh, what is the claim? Because it, it seems like with the rise of increasingly intelligent things that we create, uh, the line gets a little blurrier. So what is consciousness? Yeah, I am not a philosopher of consciousness. There are people that are that, and it's <laughs> way too complicated to read. Um, I, you know, I don't know. As a layperson, I would say I think it's. I don't think it's any one thing. I think you have self awareness, as you mentioned, rationality. Um, I think, from my perspective, what I was most interested in is the fact that um, consciousness is immaterial. Whatever it is, is not a material thing. Consciousness is something that seems to exist apart. We can't. You can't cut somebody's brain open and go. There's their thoughts. Here's what they're thinking. Um, I can see I can see their thought processes. Here's the logic of their argument. You can't see those kind of things, so they're immaterial. So where does that come from? Uh, you know, and another thing too, as you're talking about things like robots uh, manipulating things, cloning, whatever. The interesting thing is, while while we are making things that do seem more sentient or aware in in some sense, I think the more interesting thing is how are we getting there by intelligence manipulating something that already exists. I would be much more impressed if they did it starting with nothing, you know, no matter, and created a robot um, that was aware. Uh, but even then, now you have a designer, which seems to argue from my side too. So um, I'm not sure what I'm not sure you know exactly where to go with the consciousness, you know, to completely play that out. But I I don't see how that can come from a materialistic view. I really want to bring zombies into the discussion, but I'm, I'm it wouldn't be hard. To... So we're. <laughs> We'll, we'll do a zombie night sometime soon. That's its own topic. <laughs> okay, so I have a dual question uh, for both gentlemen, and uh, then we'll take questions from the audience. And this one will perhaps put both of you on the spot, but I think I have an even better one to close out the evening. So, great. <laughs> what is the best argument, in your opinion, against your position? Uh, or another way of asking this is, of all the challenges that your worldview faces, what is the one that that you put the most time and energy into because it seems like the one that rises above the others? I'm not saying you even like it or think it's awesome, just in a hierarchy. Sure. What is the one that that causes the most that causes you to put the most energy into figuring out a, a good way to respond to this? And I don't either one of you can go first. I love that question, but I'm gonna need a moment to think about this. 
Sure, that's fine. I, I realize it's a it's a hot spot question. I, I think it's an easy one for my side. I the, the I think honestly, not just the best, but really the only um, potential uh, argument on the other side is the problem of evil. I don't think it's a problem. It's a problem. It's obviously a problem. I don't think it's an undefeatable, insurmountable problem um, on Christianity. But it's definitely um, it's definitely the most problematic problem. Um, I don't know if you want any more on that or just the no. That what was it is. that was okay. okay. Yeah, I suspect now you'll get lots of questions about it since you've identified your weakness. No, <laughs> that was a very clever ruse because I have pages on that. <laughs> Uh, Justin, if it's if it's too much of an on the spot question, we uh, can do audience no, no, questions no. and come back no, to it I'll, later. I'll try to I'll try to tackle it here. Um, first of all, I think that's an excellent question. Um, probing someone to you know admit what they find to be the most potentially damaging uh, issue to their their view, I think, is a is something that should be strived for. Um, it's difficult to think of them because uh, I'm so... Um, uh, let me think here. <laughs> okay, so there's, of course, the, the distinction that can be made between arguments that I find that have a hope of being successful arguments in the sense of being sound arguments that are powerful for the conclusion of God and, and arguments that are compelling... So something like the moral argument, for example, uh, is this thing keeps clicking on me. Um, something like the moral argument for the existence of God uh, that appeals to those those common intuitions, you know, that we all share that are very strong. That you know, some things are clearly morally wrong, and some things are are clearly uh, morally virtuous. Um, appealing to those, and then saying, uh, "Look, you know." Under naturalism, you know, how do you how do you make sense of this? That's an interesting question, um, and I think that I I think that interesting things can be said about it. Uh, but but um, like in a case like that, it's like well, I see like this kind of interesting, fascinating issue that is that has presented itself to you know naturalistic points of view. Um, and I can admit that that's an interesting question, and it's a, it's a it's at times a very difficult question. But but I also have to say, I don't think the question is answered better by the other side. You know what I mean? And and, and the same goes for like uh, the existence or the you know uh, the origin of the universe, right? Um, if the universe really did, uh, as Scott claims, begin. To exist at uh, you know at the Big Bang, um, rather than the Big Bang just being this kind of horizon that our math kind of dies out after we can't look past it. Uh, if it really is the beginning, that's an you know hopefully that's an empirical question that can be uh, found out about. Um, and how we make sense of these kinds of uh, this kind of early universe that is so unlike the everyday causal relationships that we experience now, I mean, I guess what I'm just saying is that that's a really queer situation. And I, have, I, I, I fully admit that I, I just simply don't know what the hell happened, you know? <laughs> um, and the same goes for consciousness. The hard problem of consciousness, I find that 
to be incredibly confusing. But I think it's important to note, and I, I, don't, I don't want to say this as just kind of having a last word kind of thing, but like of all these different issues that I think are legitimately interesting and pose very interesting challenges, I don't think that theism does any better. I don't think it fares any better. What does it mean to say that God explains consciousness? Right? The hard problem of consciousness. How does that even... Like, what... Okay, if we take a look at the explanatory virtues that people typically appeal to when they talk about something being a good explanation of something else, how on earth is God a good explanation of consciousness other than consciousness just being kind of weird and we don't understand it and God sharing that common property of being weird? (laughs) Like, I don't get that. I don't get how that could possibly explain it. Same with morality. Right? If we have these moral intuitions of, of morality and we want to seek to explain them, it sure seems to me that any hypothesis that seeks to explain these kinds of things uh, should be sensitive to the actual content of those moral intuitions. Right? So, for example, if I want to posit a being um, who grounds our moral values or something like that, then I'm not going to posit a being who who routinely violates those very moral intuitions that we all hold dear. When I, have, when I open the Old Testament and I read what I read in there, the disgusting things I read in there, and I think that this is the being who explains my moral intuitions, you've got to be kidding me. That's an insult to my intelligence. So that's the kind of thing that like, like I'm just baffled to think, what does it even mean to say that God explains our moral intuitions when he proudly and boastfully violates every single last one of them. All right. Thanks, guys. Uh, For audience questions, let's just keep in mind, because I figure there'll be quite a few. Uh, We'll do our best to identify and give everyone turns, but uh, ask one boldly and give them a chance, and then we'll move on to the next person. Uh, We'll keep an eye on the clock, probably about 8.45 or so. I'll ask these guys a final question, and we'll wrap it up. So back of the room first. All right. uh, my question's for Scott. Um, I was just wondering, your, your argument about the beginning of the universe was based on the assumption that all events must have a cause. And so I was wondering how you would respond to Stephen's Hawking argument that the universe um, uh, cannot have a cause, which I guess I'll just briefly explain in logic steps. One, causes must precede their events in time. Two, there is no time prior to the beginning of time. Three, therefore the universe cannot have a cause. So just how would you respond to sure. that? Sure. Um, I think one thing that's interesting is to look at the scientific community and philosophical community's response to Hawking, which has not been um, complimentary. Uh, I don't think that avoids any problems, though. It, it goes in part to what Justin was saying about there, the, the universe itself being eternal and necessary. I'm not sure what good it does to say that goat positing any eternal, necessary universe is, is somehow a superior idea to saying there's an eternal, necessary God. I don't... I don't see, I mean, with a God, at least you have consciousness and, and um, the weird thing, um, <laughs> um, you know, a state of being and thought and, and a sense of morality, things like that, which you can't say the, that the universe has thought or morality or things like that. So I'm not sure how that gains us anything. It seems like we have a whole lot more things to explain. Um, and then, you know, for him to say that, well, I guess, does that answer your question? I'm, I'm, maybe I'm not understanding your question. In a way, but uh, so do you believe that all events must have a cause, and so you reject the idea that that the universe could have sure could be without a cause? Sure. 
Um, actually, I'd, I'd have to think about all events having a cause. Actually, the, the first premise of Kalam is everything that been, begins to exist has a cause, which I think is pretty intuitively true, that anything we can think of that begins to exist has a cause for its existence. So as far as events and those kind of things, I'm not sure how I'd, how I'd classify that, but the, the, the Kalam goes that... Can we bring up the Kalam yeah, anything, any Anything that begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist, therefore the universe has a cause. So I don't, I don't think that, uh, that he touches that, honestly. Yeah. Oh, my question was for Scott, but I think um, at the end here, Justin, maybe you would have some input on it. So, Scott, you were talking about morality, and you described it or likened it to another sense that we have, that we somehow, as humans, have this intuitive or internal way of knowing what's right and wrong, if I'm... Was okay. understanding you correctly? Maybe. Go on. Okay. So if, if we look, though, at anthropology, we look at the history of all the cultures that we know of that have been on the planet, whether religion aside, we can see behavior that today we would call or you would think is abhorrent. Mm-hmm. Um, cultures that uh, tortured babies, cultures that included things maybe more benign like homosexuality is being accepted, that kind of thing. So how do you um, deal with that in your argument when you're saying that we all have this intuition and I'm thinking that really morality comes from a, a cultural or just a you know, kind of group think, if you will, because we've seen that and we've kind of proven it through, mm-hmm. through looking at history. Sure. Let's see. Um, so as far as morality being... Yeah, you're close, but I wouldn't probably word it quite the way you did. I wouldn't say that we all agree on what is right and wrong. Actually, more what I was going for is we all have this moral sense that there exists a right and wrong. And certainly different people cash that out different ways, and they draw lines different places depending on the topic um, as individuals and as societies. So I think that explains why there have been changes. My main appeal was we have this intuitive sense um, of what, uh, that there is such thing as right and wrong. You know what I'm saying? That it, that, that exists as a sense. Um, that was the main thing I was going at. So so where could that sense come from? As far as what you were saying about uh, cultures describing things, or um, defining things, groupthink kind of deal, that, that goes to the more relativistic th- uh, issue that I addressed, where, sure, groups could... Uh, decide, you know, for us, um, you know, genocide, that's fine because it works for us or, or torturing babies or whatever it happens to be or something benign, like you said. They could do that, but at best, all you could be saying is they are making value claims. You can't say that what they're saying is right or wrong or better or worse. So, for instance, during slavery, you've got people like William, uh, William Wilberforce coming along saying this ought not be and working to working against this, which was the predominantly held view, um, those people couldn't be seen as making things better. They weren't moral reformers. They were just bigots, bu- no, bigots, bullies. They were just saying, all of you think this, and that's what everybody accepts, but I think you're wrong. Uh, what justification would you have for doing so? And why should we listen to somebody like that? Um, you know, there have been cultures who, like you said, have decided that um, if the crops are down then probably the gods are unhappy, so everyone would, God would be happier, the people would be happier, we'll get the crops, 
um, common consent. Everybody, nobody is disappointed if we sacrifice a baby, which seems abhorrent, but there have been cultures that believe that. So they would do that. So I guess on what basis would we say that they're doing something wrong? If there isn't an objective moral standard, how can we say that, that what they did was wrong if we're just making, a, you know, we just have different ideas now, different preferences? Like you said, times change, group think, the way that our group thinks now in this time, in this era, in this culture is different from what they used to do. You know, that was good for them, but it's not good for us, and what we do now is good for us, and other people may judge us differently later. Um, okay, so yeah, I think the, uh, you know, the point she's making is that it sure seems like our moral intuitions aren't really uh, sufficient for moral knowledge. Uh, that is to say that moral intuitions, because they seem so time and location sensitive, um, at least you know a lot of them, uh, that they're unreliable as as uh, seekers of truth. Right? Um, I mean, you had a, there was a point in time where slavery was generally thought of as an economic issue, not a moral issue, um, and you know people like Bishop Wilberforce, you know. Uh, was able to uh, improve his moral view, and yes, I say improve because I think that there are uh, such things as uh, you know as as, uh, as objective moral duties. Um, we shouldn't forget, though, that uh, at the time he was doing that, he was in the minority, uh, and who was in the majority? Uh, Bible-believing Christians who were supporting slavery. Why is this? Well, because you have in the Old Testament. Sanctions for allowing slavery, uh, conditions in which, in, in under which you may purchase slaves from foreign, from uh, foreign countries. Uh, they made it. The Bible makes a distinction between foreign slaves and the slavery of, of, of a fellow Israelite. Right. So, a fellow Israelite, that kind of slavery wasn't really slavery. It was a kind of indentured servitude. Right. Where you could work off a debt. But the Bible makes a, makes a distinction between that and foreign slaves. Foreign slaves. You can have and you can um, give them to your children as an inheritance. They were quite literally property. Um, and so, I mean, we talk about, about moral advancement. Uh, it sure seems that, you know, the, this kind of secular humanism is what's actually uh, advancing morals, right? Uh, and we can thank Wilberforce for being on our side for that. Can, can I just one sentence after that? Um, and in a lot, this that discussion go on for a long time. Obviously, there's a lot to be said on both sides. <laughs> I, I would just ask one thing and in, in, yeah. uh, to follow up. Didn't we all have a, sh- a common, a shared intuition after the Boston bombings, after hearing about Kermit Gosnell? I mean, there's something, some shared intuition we all shared. Sure, we all have different things that you know. There's gray areas where we you have margin, but I think that there is something that is a visceral. That was wrong, or that is noble, that is virtuous. So I'm just, just rhetorically, why is that? Where does that come from? Just something to think about. Well, I hate to uh, pick on Scott here, but my question is also for you. Um, and um, I enjoyed this Kalam uh, argument a lot, and then I enjoyed the fact that you um, went on to talk about Christianity. I thought maybe you were going to just leave us there with a kind of deist argument. But... Um, but I think when it comes to morality and Christianity, I think that you're somewhat missing the point in the sense that isn't God a horrible hypocrite if he did create the universe and we have, I mean, he beseeches us to be 
merciful and to show forgiveness and to um, love our neighbors even as ourselves. But um, at the same time, we all have to go through incredible suffering and eventually die. He, um, even if you know it's it's not a dad torturing a child, you could make the free will argument there. But a lot of times, God will just kill someone with a lightning bolt, or he'll um, kill someone with malaria or something when they're trying to spread his own message. So, um, so God doesn't seem to follow his own moral prescriptions. And then also when it comes to changing morality, do you really follow the morality of Jesus or of um, St. Paul? Paul of um, Tarsus, who is the only, as far as I know, he's the only New Testament character who actually is a historical figure referenced by outside sources. But his morality, wouldn't that be far afield from ours in the first place? Because he was, after all, a Jew, and he practiced all the Jewish rites. But also, um, which that doesn't mean his morality is different, I suppose. What I mean there is he thought it was a moral thing to um, do the Sabbath and all that. And, um, and also he believed in demons and exorcism and all that. I'm going to recommend for the sake of all the other hands that you choose one or two things well, from quite a few. Yeah, no, I'll, I'll address them all really two. briefly. Um, uh, uh, yeah, as, as you're saying, these, are, these could go on a long time. Um, as for doesn't God violate morality, I think there are good answers to that. However, what I would say is if the topic is does God exist, at best, going down the line you're doing, you could say something about God's character, but there's nothing logically incompatible with what you're saying. That, that God could exist and he could command these things, yet not follow them himself. I don't think that's the case, but I don't think that that's logic and a logical impossibility. Um, that's a different issue. That's just somebody's character. Um, as far as Paul being the only real New Testament character, we can talk about that later. There's a, we'd have to talk about what you're, what you're getting at there. As far as what, uh, where you were going at the end, were you talking about Paul following Jewish practices? Oh. Yeah, so I don't want to take up. Yeah, I, I would say on that. I mean, that's the community. That's the that's where Paul was. He's with he's with uh, Jews, first century Jews. That's what they did. So, you know, when in Rome, do as the Romans. I, that would be the short answer. And there's certainly a lot more to be said about it. But good questions, though. Your your questions were all good. Yeah, was, very I'm good. Just trying to give opportunity might for I, others. Yeah, as might well. I say, um, you're you're right in that his his uh, criticism of God as um, having a moral standard, a separate moral standard for us than to himself. Um, you're absolutely right in saying that, that that concern doesn't really play into the existence of God, right? You're right. Just, it's a, it's sure. a criticism of his character. That is true. But it does affect the inference from our moral intuitions to God, right? Sure. That would, yeah. that would uh, uh, put a, a cloud of doubt above such an argument. Yeah. As, as, as to say that God explains our morals, that would definitely throw a wrench into that. Mm-hmm. I had the back of the room here, I think it's the back wall, and then I had um, some back in the back there. Remarkably, in the 21st century, I don't think we've yet heard the word gene or evolution. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I I think the uh, sociologists are are of a strong opinion that we can find morality in uh, babies at a year and a half, and that there's a strong genetic component. Um, And I think then if we if we put this in the scenario of evolution and we, we pull in this idea of competing desires of all life, I think we can very easily derive morality from, from evolution. And so it, the whole issue of it having to come from God, I think, is, is bogus. 
So, Justin, do you think evolution provides a good foundation for morality? I think evolution can uh, has a um, very... Uh, first of all, I think evolution is true. Um, <laughs> I don't know if I need to clarify that or not. Uh, I think evolution, uh, the, the pressures on... The, the selection pressures, I think, do a very good job in explaining why we have the moral intuitions that we do have. But I don't think that we can go from that to uh, to that explains our obligations. I think those are two separate things. Um, I think that you have to do a little bit of, of moral philosophy to get there. But when it comes to why we feel the way we feel about, um, uh, you know, why why we're you know we're, we're Clearly, we're social animals, right? Um, and we are, and our our moral intuitions very much reflect that. Uh, we would we got we have the moral intuitions we would predict, uh, given the fact that we're social animals. So, um, I think that yeah, as I was saying, I think that evolution does explain those. But when it comes to actual uh, obligations, I think that's uh, quite another issue, um, in that it requires doing some philosophy. Um, yeah, briefly, good, good question, good topic, and there's a lot to agree with with what both of you said. What I would say, though, is I th- think that it misses the point in a way, um, just because from the studies you're saying, at least from what I've read on the topic you mentioned, at best, as I see it, what they're identifying is there exists a, a gene, a whatever, there is something that is able to, to ascertain morality in some sense. What it sounds more like to me and from the people that I've read is that it's more like a radio tuning into a station. So it's an ability to perceive morality, not the morality itself being seated inside of us. That's, that would be a brief response to that. Um, also, so what, what you were saying, uh, you know, sure, we are a, a social species, and I, I'm well familiar with the, the arguments that we've evolved this, um, oh, these interacting these ways that we do to get along but we can point to all kinds of animals that are equally social that don't have this sense of morality and do when we see a lion take down a gazelle or somebody takes down someone in their own herd we don't see that and say that was immoral bring them up on charges we say that just animals behaving as animals right but if you look at the lion and you look at the social hierarchy within the like group right which is the same with humans right we care more about our family than we do then you know I would about you guys. I mean, I think you're all great, but I'm going to save my family first, right? right. Same with the uh, you know the lions, right? They obviously they you know they have to eat, and they're they're uh, you know they're going to have to do what they got to do. Sure. But if you look at the family hierarchy and the things they will do for each other, I think that's what we're talking about here. Uh, same for chimpanzees. You know, there, there's experiments where you'll have uh, you know one chimp on one side of the glass and another on the other side. And there will be a, a small hole between the two. Uh, this this one over here will have a, a strange little contraption with a like a, a little a nugget of food in there. And he recognizes uh, both of them recognize because it's a glass panel that he can't open that to get the food without the rock that's on this side of the panel. So what do they do? Well, they work together. He gets in the rock. And what does this chimpanzee do? He, he could eat both. He could eat both of the nuggets of food, but he doesn't. Mm-hmm. He recognizes the help, and he sends half of it to the glass. Those kinds of social, uh, that kind of social awareness is, 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 is 
just beautiful to learn about. I mean, these. Sure. I mean, to say that. I mean, that, that's why I get so confused when I see people that look at chimpanzees and see them acting in, in, in such analogous ways to us and to think that these are just some fundamentally different kind of creature. That just seems to me to be ignoring so much of what we know about these animals. Um, and it's not just chimpanzees, of course. Uh, they're, they're one of the higher primates and, and one of the more interesting ones because of that. Um, but of course, there's lots of, of, of animals with, with fascinating social behavior that really starts to, you know, when you, when you look at these things, they start to humble you. You know, we're not so, so special after all in this way. Okay. Any questions? Up in the back? Yep. Oh, my, yeah. Um, half of this stuff went over my head, so I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but um, uh, when you guys talk about morality, if God did create the universe, and uh, they do say that the Big Bang uh, was the perfect moment at the beginning, and everything is slowly going into chaos. So if God did create the universe, and that was his touch, who's to say um, that when we talk about morality, uh, it's not just our idea of it? I mean, God in the Old Testament, of course, he was uh, vicious sometimes. He was... But um, that's because he's God, right? I mean, he. I mean, it's he. He was God. Jesus came to bring the love of God. Whether I mean, whether you believe that, uh, I mean, he said he was the Son of God, but he went against the Old Testament. You know, eye for an eye, hit me on the on the right cheek, and uh, let him hit you on the left. You know, he he actually went against the Old Testament. He brought out. The love of God. Now, um, um, and um, basically, uh, do you ever uh, think of an, an agnostic God? Um, I forget your name. Justin. Uh, Justin. Justin. You ever think of, a, of an agnostic God that he just created the universe and let everything just um, slowly go into? So you mean like a deistic God where he's not one to intervene. In an impersonal God. He just starts yes. the ball rolling and steps out. Yeah, Jesus kind of came to bring uh, his love or try to bring some kind of some kind of aspect of of, of love to God. Uh, okay. to God. So I think- and, 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 and like even even um, like homosexuality and stuff, that's um, that's a form of demeaning that we created. That's uh, we uh, we read the Bible and certain things we pick out, certain things we don't. I mean, I know in the Bible there's in the New Testament it says, uh, um, "For if a woman should not cover her head, let her be shorn." Well, we don't we don't follow that at all. And Jesus never talked about homosexuality. He 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 always said. I mean, he said, you know, whoever has not sinned, throw the first stone. Jesus tried to bring the love. Dave, I think what you're asking is, the question for Scott is, do you see a contrast between God as portrayed in the Old Testament and then Jesus arriving in the New? Does that create a conflict in the Christian conception of God? And Justin, I think what he's asking you is, 
Um, are you open to the idea of a deistic type of God, a God who started things rolling and then just backed out? So whichever one of you wants to go yeah, first. Yeah, I'll go briefly. I would say I, I don't see a, a split. I, I think it's very easily reconcilable. I think that people read what they want to read or hear what they want to hear. It's a, uh, I don't think people are as familiar with it as they maybe ought to be, and I don't think it's irreconcilable. I don't think it's a you know bad, mean God in the old days, and then he got nice later. Um, I think that's uh, that's reconcilable, but um, not in the time I have. <laughs> so bring it next door, I guess. Um, okay, so whether I'm open to a, a theistic God when that kind of starts the ball the ball rolling and, and steps away, um, yeah, um, I'm just you know interested in the evidence and and. and you know, because a deistic god is 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 a is a vague god. There's not really you know all all you would have to do is you know demonstrate that there you know there was a god of some sort that created the universe, right? Uh, it would be uh, much easier to argue for that kind of god, and of course a god with a lot of these con- these uh, you know this whole narrative attached to him. Um, and so I think you know uh, a priori, right? Be- before. Um, Looking at the evidence of the experience, I think that a deistic god is, you know, has a higher probability than, you know, a, a theistic god, right? One that interacts, um, just because, just in virtue of, of it being simpler, right? Uh, you know, the, the the idea of parsimony, right? You know, if they're both, if you're positing these two things and one is just simpler, you know, one's that one is just, I think, intrinsically more probable, but I still think it's improbable. It's just not as improbable as Scott's got over here. <laughs> just wait till you go home. <laughs> um, we're going to take one more question, and I think regardless of whether or not you believe in God, we all believe in beer, so that'll be next door. Um, we're going to take one more question from the audience, and then we have a question up here to wrap up, and we'll, we'll head next door. Uh, right here. Well, I was really glad to finally hear some other species mentioned than just our own. And I did notice that the male pronoun for that being that we're discussing was always a male pronoun. And considering how many species there are on this planet that we're on, and the very sort of concrete idea of a uh, powerful being with foresight, how do you explain extinction, uh, new species developing, cross-culturally, almost everyone in the world thinks that murder in itself is a bad thing to do, regardless of their religion. And when you guys mentioned... uh, Christianity and slavery, well, it was very easy to have slaves because they weren't human beings. They were only two-thirds, even in the count, in in the United States. So I'd like you both to address the bigger picture than just us talking about something that seems very much like us. Yeah, uh, I don't don't know if I'm in a position to uh, apologize for the Abrahamic patriarchy, but... Um, I guess you are. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Me against the animals. <laughs> as for the the bigger picture, I mean, I mean, yeah. I mean, when you when you when you expand your scope to include the uh, you know billions of years of of the of the suffering, uh, the argument from evil really takes on a whole new light, right? When you include all these instances, because you know if if it's true that. Um, 
you know, a, a large, um, you know, if we look at a, a fairly large uh, number of, of, of evils that sure seem gratuitous, right? Like they have no justification. That's, you know, the, the probability of God should be sensitive to that. And so if you expand it to include all of those things, then, then the probability of God should be even more sensitive to that. And it should be, should be pounded down further into the ground. Um, and so, yeah, I, th- I think you bring up a very good point um, when, when we expand our scope and we look at the bigger picture. And, um, you know, like another good point you bring to expand it even further, if we look at the Kalam cosmological argument, we say that, well, the, the, you know, a God is, is, uh, is responsible for the origin of the universe. Well, we also would need to take on board the specifics about how the universe is. Right? If, if, if a God who cares about humanity is what's being posited to explain the universe, we have run into some problems there because the vast majority of the universe simply won't, uh, isn't hospitable to humanity. So it sure seems like if we're going to, I mean, this is like saying, well, there's a blade of grass sticking up in the middle of that parking lot. Clearly, the person who laid down this parking lot is, is favorable to grass. Right. That would, I mean, you don't think that that argument would be compelling. Um, maybe we don't have a good explanation for the parking lot being there. You know, maybe that's the case, but surely we shouldn't think that the parking lot would care, or that, the, that the guy who laid down that pavement cares about grass. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think you're right. You know, you, when you broaden the scope, it does have profound implications upon the, 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 uh, the probability of, of such a being. Um, to respond to that last part, I, my in-laws have a very large amount of land <laughs> and a remarkably small amount of land where you would want to fall asleep at night. Um, so <laughs> just, just because I think that just be, uh, they have, relatively speaking, a, only a very small habitable space right. in the scheme of things. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I don't think that that in itself disproves their existence. Oh no! I, I, so, I, I, I but as far agree. as the que- I didn't hear questions. I'm not sure what to respond no, to. No, my my only point, just uh-huh. just to clarify, sure. wasn't that it would disprove such a being. It's mm-hmm. that positing such a being would be a terrible explanation of that state of affairs, right? Because if we posit such a being and we say, what kind of things can we predict if this being were to be, to exist? And if we knew about this being ca- carrying, like, okay, so if I posit a guy who likes to make parking lots. Or, no, if I posit a gardener, right, who has a particular affection for grass, and he creates this parking lot with a tiny blade of grass in the middle, that's not exactly what you'd predict given the actions of this gardener. In the same way, given a God who cares about humanity, who cares about, you know, who we have sex with, we are, you know, that, that, that you know, we... Uh, we you know uh, that we come to know him right in a personal relationship with his his son or himself um, that just isn't a good explanation of you know you you would never predict that he would create this giant universe and one small world um, in the galaxy in the in the universe so that that's what I'm saying is that that sure. inference uh, undergoes some very severe violence to that inference. All right, I am going to ask a final question because we're about out of time. And I'm going to ask the question and let both you guys think about it a little bit while I make a couple final announcements. So my question for both of you is this. What would it take to change your mind? Is there any type of evidence or argument or scenario that you can envision where if you were convinced that this particular thing were true, 
it would be the type of thing that would be a game changer for you. So just mull over that for a little bit. A couple things to note, etc. is on Facebook. If you've not been there before, you will find lots of quotes from either the presenters or questions from the audience that Levi, I think, has been putting them on as the evening's been going on. Uh, engage there. We've had some great discussion. I don't know if you followed from last month, but we had some really good posts on there about the topic. Uh, if you would like to get on an email mailing list, uh, I've discovered that if uh, you're not friends on Facebook, Facebook now charges you money to send people messages or something. I don't know. What? So, yeah, at least mine does. <laughs> That's horrifying. I know. Maybe it's just because I'm in Gron. I don't know. <laughs> Getting tax money. Um, but if you find me on Etcetera's Facebook, I'm the Anthony Weber that posts things on there, and you ask me to be your friend. Uh, <laughs> We can send messages, and I can get an email, and I can put you on a mailing list if you're interested in any upcoming uh, presentations that we have. Those include a discussion coming up of the same-sex marriage debate, a discussion about invasive non-native species. Somewhere down the road, we have animal rights uh, coming up on our docket yet this year. So we've got lots of cool topics coming up. Our website is etcetratc.org. Uh, Every month I try to post an article or two on there before the meeting with a lot of links that are relevant to the topic that's being discussed, hopefully giving you a pretty wide range of opinions on the particular topic. Uh, We do invite you next door, of course, to the Blue Tractor afterwards. It's always uh, entertaining and informative. So, guys, who wants to go first? Oh, shoot, yeah. Um, Scott, why don't you go first? (laughs) Uh, that one actually is a fairly easy one. If it could, for me anyway, if it could be proven that Jesus died and stayed dead, then it'd be done. I don't think it can be though. I, at least plausibly or scientifically, I'm not sure how that would be. You know, I'm not sure how we'd find the DNA evidence, the bones. You know, absolute proof. You know, it says Jesus, son of Joseph and Mary, James's brother. Yeah, There's the this horrific tattoo. religion. <laughs> yeah, right. I, I don't know how that would play out and how that could be proven. But if it could be proven, Christianity would be off the table. And I'd, I mean, it'd be a big deal, but that would do it. Theism, though, I, I think I'm more convinced that atheism doesn't fit the facts than even Christianity is true. And I think Christianity is the best going answer by a long shot. But even if there were some reason to walk away from Christianity, it would be some other theistic enterprise of some sort. Um... Shoot. Wasn't enough time? I can go. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, so okay, so what would convince me that are we saying what would convince me that uh, Christianity is true or that a god that atheism is false. Okay, that atheism is false. Well, I I don't know that it would take all that much, especially if, you know, the god we're talking about or the greater being or whatever we're talking about, if he or she uh, is all powerful um, and, and cared whether or not I believed in them, they would know exactly what it would take for me to believe, right? I mean, they know, they would know. Um, I mean, okay, so there's, there's a diff- it's a different question to what would cause me to believe and what would be rational, because I'm not under the, um, I'm not under the spell that I'm a perfectly rational being, and I don't think anybody here should be. Um, but Okay, so like if I had some crazy experience um, that would lead me to believe in a god, maybe that wouldn't be a rational inference, but perhaps that would be a reason 
that would be a, that would cause me to believe in a god. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, as for, I honestly can't think of of what. Well, how about this? If whatever was up there um, took a bunch of space dust and spelled out a <laughs> complex paragraph in a way that and I know this sounds absurd like oh you're re- you're putting it so far out there that it could never happen right but obviously if if the being cares whether I believe in it or not and he has, he's all powerful that this should be no this should be no feat at all um, and he know he would know what it would take for me to believe um, and I think that that would I think that's such a complex thing with um, the kind of with with the language that I understood right so it would be it would not only be improbable but it would be um, it would be special in the sense that it would be um, focused information. Um, and it would be, um, yeah, I think that that would be a valid inference to think that some kind of super powerful mind exists. I think that, that, I think that I'd feel perfectly rational in doing so. I don't know if it is rational, but I, I'm pretty sure that I would find that compelling and believe. <laughs> and... Uh, I, I or if I, I opened a fortune cookie and it said, turn around and Scott punched me in the face, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> that is in the works, actually. Right? <laughs> All right. Uh, and I'm pretty sure I read the scenario you just gave in space. Uh, it was a plot twist in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Oh. I think so. <laughs> well, thanks to Scott and Justin both. Uh, as always, thanks to all the volunteers who over this last year have given time and energy. And I, I know these guys put a lot of thought into uh, making this evening happen and Justin did some traveling and uh, I, what we're offering them is our friendship and our camaraderie and a big round of applause. Uh, just briefly before you go, Levi, can you flip to the last screen? Um, websites for both these guys if you're interested. And uh, Justin, I believe you have a radio show as well. Yeah, um, doubtcast.org is a link to uh, a podcast uh, slash uh, local radio show in Grand Rapids uh, where, we, where we examine these topics. Uh, where we're, we're, um, we look at the arguments of apologists. We address a lot of the arguments you've heard tonight and uh, many arguments that you haven't heard tonight. Uh, and we do so in a way where uh, we really take pains to try and, and, and represent uh, these arguments as 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 uh, charitably as we can, and then we show them why they're not very good. Um, and uh, and you, we uh, have an email doubtcast uh, at gmail dot com. So if you have any questions or you want to get in contact with me, uh, please don't hesitate to do such a thing. Um, go, yeah. Yeah, um, kind of the opposite of that. (laughs) We do here. Uh, TC Apologetics, we meet first and third uh, Thursdays of the month um, at Church of the Living God. Um, And similarly, it's to examine claims of atheism and and other worldviews. Not that atheism is a worldview by itself, but um, looking at other claims to to look at how to um, refute them and to defend Christianity. Is Christianity um, true? So that, uh, and anyone's welcome to those. It's not exclusively Christian, but that is the worldview that we're uh, um, that we're talking about there. Uh, the website and everything is there. We're on Facebook as well. Uh, we're actually bringing in a speaker um, this starting Sunday. He's going to be here for a few days at a number of different venues. His name's Jay Watts. If you're interested, um, probably the most relevant and interesting 
uh, venue would be Monday night at NMC Scholars Hall, room 109. He's speaking on the heart of the abortion dilemma. So looking at both sides, presenting both sides fairly, and that's his goal. And if, if he's not being at the place it is, he's happy to hear that he is not. Um, but looking at the looking at the issue and seeing what what the real question is. So um, you're all welcome to that if you would like to come. Thanks everybody for joining us tonight, and hopefully we'll see you next month. To catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes, or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission. <laughs>